It's very important to the heart of the Lord that we honor Him as holy so that we recognize Him as God. When we treat God as common, it is a very disturbing thing to the Lord. And in Romans 1, he goes over that in detail. And in Revelation 3, he talks about, if you love me lukewarm, it's a very big deal. And even though you think that you're doing great, you're not doing great. For that one thing, if your love towards me is lukewarm. It's very important we treat him as holy and wonderful and loving. Today, the title of the talk today is, Jesus is victory over that. Jesus is victory over that. And we've been talking um, in the last times, finishing out what the Scripture says is the basic equipping of the saints. Meaning for every believer, every believer needs to repent from sin. Every believer needs to accept Jesus as Savior as He's the one whose blood redeemed us from the punishment due of sin. To accept Jesus as our King and our Savior, as our Lord, excuse me, as our Lord and King, and to be baptized in water and the Holy Spirit. And that's the beginning package. That is the beginning package for a Christian. And everybody needs to walk through that package, or the rest of life is not going to make sense in a Christian life. Especially accepting Jesus as our Lord and King, trying to kind of be with Jesus some and be in something else some, like our own strength will kill you. And the Lord kind of showed me this one time if you were trying to sit in a car and walking outside of a car at the same time. So you kept one leg on the ground and you put your rear end in a car. Well, putting your one leg on the ground is that part of you that you keep in the flesh that you don't give to the Lord. And having some in the car isn't anything like having that last leg pulled into the car so that the Lord can drive the car. And we work on that, and we have a difficult time because we say, I'm partially in, I don't see the kind of result I want. The result works wonderfully once we're all together in, but we can't be partially in with him. He's calling us all together in. But I've taught on that for a bunch. I'll repeat that many times. Victory is in Jesus. It's so important to see that Jesus himself is the victory. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus in every place. The Bible says that God always leads us in triumph where? In Christ. If you're reading the New Testament, um, Christian, I'll just challenge you when you read the New Testament to take a pen and everywhere you see in Christ, underline it. You will be amazed at how much in Christ appears in the New Testament. It is all over the place. It is all over the place because that is what a Christian is, a Christian who is someone in Christ. In the New Testament books, every time the the writer, usually Paul of the New Testament books, would write, he would say, to the, to the believers, those who are in Christ. He would say, to the Galatians, those who are in Christ. To those in Philippi, those who are in Christ. The distinction was you're either in Christ or you're not. And that was the singular distinction. It wasn't Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male nor female. The distinction is in Christ and not in Christ. And Jesus says, Jesus told us, when he was here, that he was more special than Jonah, 
that he was more special than Solomon. And you cannot make Jesus too special. As, as far and as high as we exalt him, he deserves to be exalted higher and farther. And as much as we think we know of him, we still just know a little of him. And he is opening up and moving that we would know more and more of him. He is the most wonderful, and I'm going to use a complicated word, unfathomable wonderful person. And the Son of God who came and lived just like we are. And one of the things, Hope, that I like about the Lord is that he experienced life just like we do. You know, when the Lord's father was a carpenter, you got to know he smashed his finger with a hammer. You have to know he did. I don't know if any of y'all have ever done that, uh, smashed your finger with a hammer. I don't want to tell you how many times I've done it, um, but I have hit it hard at least one time. And your mind works like this. You look down and you go, this is going to hurt. But there is about a two-second delay where your nerves are so damaged they can't send the pain signal. So you smash it and you, you damage them so bad they haven't been able to send pain up to the brain yet. But you're looking there going, this is going to hurt bad. And this is the calm before the storm. And it's just the tiniest little bit of time and then the pain comes. And then it really hurts. And I don't know what you do, but I hop and dance and run and grab and stick it underwater and do all sorts of things, but mostly I squeeze it, you know, to get rid of that. Because when that hurts, that hurts. And if somebody stopped you right there and said, could I excuse you, could you excuse me just for a moment, I want to talk to you about something? Not now. My pain is killing me, and I am dealing with it at the moment. Jesus knows what it means to deal with things that deal with our body. He had to deal with all the things that we deal. And in Hebrews it says that we have a high priest who came and was tempted in every way the way that we are. A long time ago I used to think, yeah, well, Jesus was tempted, but he was the Son of God. You know, so the temptation didn't hit him. It just bounced off like water off a turtle shell. You know, that's nothing. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are. And, you know, Jesus went through the temptations. And I used to think one time, I thought, well, that was his big temptation time. And after that, he had finished his testing and he was cruising on until the cross. But that's not what the scripture says. It's very interesting in John because he gathers the disciples together and he says, for you have been with me through my times of trials. You have been with me through my times of trials. And he's saying this before he goes to the cross. Well, he did not gather his disciples with him until after he had gone through the wilderness. So they had been with him after the wilderness, through his times of trials, before he went to the cross. And I never used to think of Jesus going through times of trials all the way through his ministry. But he did, because he is tempted in every way like we are. Are you tempted? I'm tempted. He was tempted in every way like we are. So he is a merciful but an understanding high priest because he knows what it means. And when we talk to him, he doesn't go, look, I did all that for you. You should get all this straightened out. Why does temptation bother you? He knows why temptation bothers us. He understands. So Jesus is higher and more wonderful then however high and wonderful we can put him up, he's more high and wonderful than that. 
It says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What? In Jesus. In Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual, play, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Jesus is all the blessings of God. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians, For in Him all the promises of God find their amen. I like it in the King James where it says their yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Not by themselves, but in Jesus. All the promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. All the blessings in the heavenly sphere are in Jesus. And this is the greatest part. He has invited us in to Jesus. That's our description, that we are in Jesus. So when we talk about victory, the enemy wants us to make victory to be an isolated condition for which you go through predetermined steps that incrementally get you there. So let's just say I was talking to uh, Margie and I was saying, well, we're going to... We're going to go up to the revival in Dawsonville. Now, this is how you do it. You know, you go around 285, you get on 400, you go up 400 to exit, whatever it is. You get off exit, whatever it is, go 150 yards, turn right, and then turn left, and there's a little bitty sign, and that's it. And I write that down on a piece of paper. Well, in one sense, if Margie would pay attention to that paper and the instructions were right, she could say, okay, I'm finished with the 285 part, I'm closer. I'm finished with the 400 part, now I'm closer. Now I've gotten off at the right exit. Now I'm moving in. Ah, there's the building. I've arrived. I took the steps one at a time and progressively moved closer, and now I have gotten there, and I am at the revival. We want to take that kind of approach to things which God has already freely given us in Christ and take those things out of Christ and come over here and say, there are five steps to victory. The first step is this. The second step is this. The third step is this. If you'll go through these five steps, at the end of that will be victory. Well, this isn't totally wrong. You definitely want to be in the Lord. And if you've got steps that get you in the Lord, you'll find victory. But no process or procedure that isn't centered on Jesus will give you victory. Now, it might give you a sense that you're kind of doing something, but it doesn't give you victory because victory is singularly and alone in Jesus. And when we are in Jesus is the only time that we have true victory over this world. And that is why Jesus said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And that's why the scripture says, if God be for us, who can be against us? But I, I, I want to emphasize this. I had a very difficult time in my life, and uh, Pastor Miguel is here, and I'm not speaking of you, Pastor Miguel, but in prior sermons all through my life, the preacher would preach on different things and might preach on victory or overcoming or might preach on love or peace or joy. And all the time after those sermons, and I really was worried about the sermons on sins of omission. I never did really good on that sermon. But after these sermons, I would go back and kind of rank myself, Gary, and I would say, well, how am I doing on victory? How am I doing on love? 
how am I doing on joy? And whenever I ranked myself, I would come out at the end going, not so good. You know, I don't really ever think I made an A minus. I was always, the best I ever did, I think, was a B. And I had a few D minuses and one or two Fs and patience and, and uh, forbearing and something like that. And it would discourage me. And I would go, rats, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been in church a long time and I'm still not doing well on what the Bible says a Christian should be like. And when the Bible talks about we always march in triumph in Jesus, I'm not always marching in triumph. Um, I've got two or three things I think I was flopped to the floor on, you know, this week. And why is that? And then after a while, you quit thinking about it because it's too discouraging. God doesn't mean for us to be discouraged. He means for us to recognize that every blessing, every promise of God is hidden in Christ. And that when you are in Christ, you experience the fullness of the Godhead and you experience the victory that's in Jesus. You experience the love that's in Jesus. You experience the peace that's in Jesus. You experience the patience that's in Jesus. And everybody in this room knows that Jesus then changes you. And you, you, he changes you, and his spirit moves over you and changes things in you that were always one way to, to a whole different way. And only he can do that. And we're going to talk through some verses that talk about it. So there isn't a victory that is apart from abiding in Jesus. And that's why Jesus spent so much time to say, this is what I'm asking of you, that you abide in me. That's what I'm asking of you that you abide in me. Because these other things flow out naturally. And then, you know, you get to Galatians and you find the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. Well, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus in us, it says in Romans. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus in us. And it's the fruit of that Spirit that brings forth these wonderful things that we call Christian virtues. Not the fruit of our flesh. But you know, John, I almost banged on myself so hard, I was going to squeeze victory out of my flesh if it killed me. And it almost did kill me. And sometimes you say, I'm going to have joy if there's no joy. I'm going to have it, doggone it. You cannot beat yourself into joy. You cannot beat yourself into love. Furthermore, if you could beat yourself into joy, what would you do? Well, at the end, what I would do is I would come up and say, I didn't have joy, but I was really tough, and I fasted 50 days. No, I can fast a day. I fasted three days. I uh, really read the Word of God. I, you know, talked to my wife and told her that everything she was doing was wonderful. I said, these things I've done all this and I've got that and it really boosted up joy in my life and it took me a month and a half but I am now 10% more joyful than I was before I started out do you see what I did every time you say the phrase do you see what I did the Bible has a term for that flesh glorying every time you say the phrase see what I did that's your flesh glorying now that was hard for me to hear from the Lord. But in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Before him, no flesh shall glory. So there is no way we could pummel ourselves into victory or pummel ourselves into love or joy or peace. But God, so great is he, 
has made a real way that victory, love, and joy, and peace can be because they're all hidden in Christ. So when, when, you, when you think about this, you have to think about what was the first thing that Jesus said about his ministry on earth. And when Jesus was describing his ministry, the first time he opened up and read from Isaiah, that was the first description where he said, this is what I came to do. And I think we know these verses. I'm going to read them again. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Jesus got up and read in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them an ornament of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a burdened, fainting spirit, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And after Jesus read those verses, he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing, that this is Jesus. Well, this has got a lot of non-victorious stuff in it. And it's got Jesus changing a lot of non-victorious stuff into victorious stuff. So let's just look at what these verses talk about. So I've written down six things where Jesus came to change something that's defeated and bad into victory. And the first thing he said was the brokenhearted. He said, I came to heal, bind up the brokenhearted. Now, I know some of you in life have had tremendously broken hearts. I have had things that disappointed me terribly. It isn't something that you can just go to the medicine cabinet and take two Tylenol and feel better. It doesn't work that way. When you have a broken heart, it's deep. It's deep inside. And you can have an expectation of somebody, and all of a sudden they just turn on you, and you can't understand why. You can have things that just fall through people you have loved and loved and loved, and they just don't respond. You can have a broken heart because somebody takes an action completely contrary to the way you were going, and they have no account for your feelings in the matter. And it touches you down deep, and it hurts. The Bible says that Jesus binds up and heals the brokenhearted. That he does that. It's not a five-step process. It is the presence of the Son of God inside of us who brings healing to the broken heart. And he does bring healing. And he does. The second thing he said was to captives. And what did he do with captives? He brought liberty to captives. And the third one is very similar because he said prisoners. And what did he do with prisoners? He set the prisoners free. So he set captives at liberty, he set the prisoners free. Now the biggest area that we're bound in is sin. The Bible says he who commits sin is a slave of sin. That we're a slave to sin. We are bound to sin. We are a captive to sin. We are prisoners to sin. The scripture says that Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin. In John 8 he says, He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
He takes the bondage and sets us free. Now, there are all sorts of sin, and there are all sorts of bondages, and sometimes the Holy Spirit has just got to take a deep dive into us to show us, you are stuck on this. Um, you know, uh, the pastor was talking about three sermons back about on Wednesday night, people come in and say, okay, here's my table, this is where I sit, and what would happen if all of a sudden we shuffled and people sat other places? And you go, well, that's a kind of a little thing. Who really cares about that? But you know, what happens to you if you come in and someone's sitting in your chair? Is there a twinge that goes, wait a second, that's my seat. What was, how did this happen? You know, or, um, you know, somebody comes to your house and so if they come to my house and so we're going to have a prayer before dinner, well, I'd like to give the prayer. Somebody starts praying without asking, would it be okay for me to pray? Well, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, this is my house. So I say, who, say, who prays when we start to pray? Do you see? Now, these are little things. I'm trying to get on some little things, but God will go down way deep. He'll find out what we're captive to. This is another big thing, and I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but God examines the hearts. He is not so interested in the styles. The enemy tries to make all these things that have no consequence be of huge consequence. So, for instance... If we have a service and we sing only hymns, and we just open the hymn book and we're singing only hymns. Uh, again, I'm looking at Pastor Miguel. There's certain people who want different hymn books. You get some people, they go, well, I want that hymn book. Somebody goes, well, I want the old gospel hymn book, the old brown one that had leaning on the everlasting arms. That's what I want to sing out of. That's the one that's got the good song. No, I want the red one. Well, I want the new combined Methodist one that does this. No, I don't want that. I only want to sing scripture songs. I don't want to sing it if it's not in scripture. We are working on something that is very small and making it very big. God is looking at our heart. You can sing from leaning on the everlasting arms, and you can sing scripture songs, and you can sing from the regular hymn. That's not a deal. It's what's in our hearts is the deal. He, you can also sing and not be able to carry a tune. And God loves it. Okay, but if not me, if I'm sitting next to somebody and they're singing out loud and they can't carry a tune, I'm thinking, how can I get away from them? You know, because it's not pleasant to hear. It's pleasant to hear to God. And who am I to put my judgment in front of God? Oh, I do that all the time <laughs> on many things. But the Holy Spirit will come and show us that. You'll hear me say a phrase that we tend to, that God's trying to get us to major on Jesus and minor on all these other things. And we have lots of things in our life that should be very little. And yet we let them be big. And the only thing that should be big is that we please the Lord. Everything else should be minor. What would you do if you had a child and you had driven 12 hours to get to Daytona Beach and it had been a rough go because there were four kids in the car and you got within a mile of the beach for your week vacation and they opened up their little sack and said, Oh no! We have my red flip-flops. We don't have my purple flip-flops. I like my purple flip-flops. We have to go back. We are not going back. That is majoring on the minor. Have you got me? We'll buy you three purple flip-flops here. We are not turning around and doing what we just did again. Do you see? Now, those things are obvious, too. Well, these other things are obvious to God. Why is it that anything but me is major to you why do you care and he'll take those things away and he's asking us give me that 
Give my style preferences. Give my ways I want to do it. Give my this. Lord, however you want to do it, let's do it that way. Um, I don't know, a couple years back in the Narthex, a couple of kids, I hope you all remember this service, a couple of kids just got anointed with the Holy Spirit in the middle of the service. And I mean less than six years old kids. And they came up and prayed for people at the altar. Do you remember that? Well, that was not in my order of worship. God, you can't take little kids that are four years old and have them praying for people who are 50, 60, and 70. That inverts the right order. And God, we don't invert the correct order here. Do you hear what I'm saying? God doesn't do that. He just grabs hold and says, I'm going to touch two children, and I'm going to come and bless people with it. God does that. And the Scripture says, and this is very important, because in Luke 11, he says, he said, For Father, it was your good pleasure to hide these things from the wise and reveal them to babes. So the way of the world is the wise know things, and they know more and more and more and more, and their wisdom progresses, and they're to be venerated. Who uses that word, venerated? They're to be respected, okay? They're to be respected because they're the wise, okay? And they know things, okay? But that's not what God said. God said that he hid these things from the wise, and he revealed them to the babes. And such was his pleasure to do that. God is not interested in knowledge, skills, and abilities. That is not on his list. He is interested in our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. The non-pure in heart don't see God. Now, they may see an image of God, but they don't see him. But those who truly desire the Lord, they find the Lord. They find the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? They shall be filled or satisfied. Now, many of us would finish that verse with, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they're going to have to hunger and thirst for righteousness for a long time. It's doggone hard to get. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is God's way, for they shall be completely satisfied. You see, he doesn't, he's not interested in our knowledge, our skills and abilities. Now, I'm not putting down people that are smart. Paul was smart. Luke was a physician. Probably uh, Matthew was a tax collector. He was probably decent. He could probably run Excel pretty well. Okay? So he doesn't exclude those people. But he, he, he doesn't say you can't come in. But he's saying if you exalt your wisdom and think you're smart, you're going to have a really rough time talking to me because this world's wisdom is foolishness with me. So it's an incredible thing that God does. He comes, supersedes everything, and comes down. And he says, I'm going to set you free from everything that's put you into bondage. And that freedom is in my son. And he will give you that freedom, not the five processes. Now, I, again, if the five processes are Jesus-centered, that's Jesus in the five processes, okay? But if you just come over here and have a process and Jesus isn't the answer to it, you're only going to have a fragile or short-term solution, not a real solution. It won't happen. It won't happen. Um, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, you're no different than the heathen. I hated that verse. Why did I hate that verse? I largely loved those who loved me. 
I didn't like being said I'm no different than the heathen. And I had to pray, and I'm still praying. Lord, let me love people who hate me. Now, I don't go around asking people, do you hate me? I don't do that. But you love people who hate you. I, you know, I have all these stories about driving on Buford Highway, but I did have one that came up the other day. You know, I, I wait in that long line on Shalliford Road, and I've mentioned this, and I wait patiently in that center lane, but if I had to get in the right lane, I could drive ahead of all the cars and then jump in at the end and turn left. And I'm always hugging that person in front of me so a car can't jump in. That's not right, by the way, but I do that. The other day, as if the Lord was going to show me that this is something that needs fixing in my life, two cars jumped in like dolphins, just right there, right in front of me. And there was room for maybe half a car. It was one of those things you had to jam on the brakes or you would have hit them. And did they put their arm out or wave or do anything? No. And the Lord just showed me my heart at that moment and said, it's not right, Jim. You need to pray for these people. Now, this is a small example. They're people that hate you in a major way. But people that take advantage of you, people that don't consider your feelings, people that march on, that don't give you credit when you deserve credit, people that slight you, people that abuse you, those people the Lord said we're to pray for. And he'll put that love in us because he's put Jesus in us. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? Not by six processes, but the Scripture says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' Spirit within us, the love of God is shed abroad. Yes, we should love. How can we love? We love because He first loved us and He dwells in us. And that's what produces that love. So He said, I'm going to make the captives free, the prisoners free, the captives at liberty, the prisoners free. For those who mourn, he said, I'm going to give you two things. And this is neat because mourning got two things. For mourning, he says, I'm going to give you comfort and I'm going to give you the oil of gladness. Comfort is a wonderful thing. Um, sometimes when you deal with finances and somebody sends you something and says, for some reason it looks like you didn't pay this bill and you're going to have to something, something, you get very uncomfortable you know, when finances go the wrong way. Uh, Helen will bring something to me. Say, I got something here they sent to me. I can't tell whether we are done something bad. You know, one time I, I got audited by the Internal Revenue Service. And I'm going to tell you something. When they send that letter to you, you read that letter, it sounds like guilty until proven innocent. That's what it sounds like. You know, and they said, we're going to audit you. And when I well, okay. And they audited. It took nine months. Now, at the end, they sent another letter. And it was a nice enough letter. It just said, we finished your audit and we're not going to do anything else. Well, yeah, what about the stress for the nine months while I was being audited? What about that dirty letter in the beginning that said, you're a bad person, we're going to, I mean, it didn't say I was a bad person, but I read it that way. Now it's probably too sensitive, but I didn't like people saying, we think you deserve to be checked on. We've looked at your records. I, that was an affront to me, okay, but I was okay. I, I didn't do anything, and they haven't audited me since, so that's good, but, but <coughs> sometimes you need comfort. We have a slew of things that seem to go on in our church where we're praying for people. We have people in the hospital. We have people that uh, break their ankle while playing soccer. We have all sorts of things because we're a church and we have people. Well, those people need to be comforted. And you can mourn, you can get down when you're in difficult circumstances and you're down. 
And Jesus said he came to take the people who were mourning, who were down, and comfort them. But you know something? Uh, um, and in 2 Corinthians, it says that God, in the first chapter, it says that God is the God of all comfort. What wonderful words. God is the God of all comfort. And it says in the second and third verse, or right around there, the first chapter, it says that he comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we receive from God. So God comforts us by his presence so we can go out and comfort others by sharing that same presence of the Lord to bring comfort to them. And in the big picture, all of you that know the Lord know there's no comfort outside the Lord. Outside the Lord is everybody building their houses on sand. And it's only when the storm comes. And you might say, well, we've had 30 dry days and my house that's built on sand hasn't washed away. I see the storm right out there a mile away. It's coming right on in. You ever build a house on the sand, which is building your life not on Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Anything in our lives that we build that's not on Jesus is going to be tested by a terrible storm and washed away. So anything built that's not on Jesus is fragile. It's only for a short time, and it'll be taken away. The scripture in 1 Corinthians says, this is true of your works. It says, all works will be tested by fire. And those things which are hay and stubble will be burned up. Well, there are works of hay and stubble, which are the works of the flesh, which are the things we've done so that we can tell to somebody else, Hope, look what I did. That's hay and stubble. That's hay and stubble. And you'll find in the New Testament that Paul is never saying, look what I did. But he always says something like, look what Christ did through me. It's incredible to read it through the scriptures. He doesn't ever take credit for things. He says, what God did through me. And we're going to get to those scriptures. So he gives comfort to those who mourn. What else does he give to those who mourn? He gives the oil of gladness. Now, we've had different times in your life where you have really felt glad. Uh, there's a few things I can remember. And I remember graduate, finishing the last final exams in college and thinking, I know I passed that. I am out. I am out. They cannot hook me anymore. I've done it. Uh, again, I'm looking at Pastor Miguel. He went through this long thing to get his doctorate. I know he had that feeling at the end. There is a period of time where you go, it is finished. And you just have the oil of gladness. Now, I'm looking at Chibu over there. Chibu, you're in the middle of things right now. You can't see that. But there will be a day, and you'll finish your degree, and you'll have a day of the oil of gladness. Now, that's a good glad, but that doesn't compare to what this is talking about. This is talking about an oil of gladness that says, I don't care what the situation is. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep me against this day. And I am in the arms of my Lord. And I see these things coming, but he has brought me out and given me joy above my situation above my situation another thing we could say about christians and non-christians is well sure you're happy everybody would be happy when they get their degree that doesn't set you apart as a christian or a non-christian that's true that's true it's like you love others who love you the heathen do that the heathen are happy when they get their degrees you know everybody's happy when you get a degree but what jesus does is he puts an oil of gladness in you when the world would look at you and say you're in the pit of circumstances you are in the pit of circumstances. 
You know, I always think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here are these guys heading into the fiery furnace. They're heading into the fiery furnace. Now, if you could go back and talk to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right before they went in, what would you say? Well, we would say, listen, you guys are going to be one of the great stories of the Old Testament. Every Bible school in America for sure is going to teach Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you have no idea. You think that's a furnace. You're going to go in there and walk around with Jesus, and when you come out, you're not even going to smell of smoke. Boy, you have the greatest thing in front of you that you can imagine. Now, that's what we would tell them, or words to that effect. But we don't, but they didn't have us. We didn't transport back in time. What are they looking at? They're looking at the guys who went up there to stoke the fire. And the men that went to stoke the fire died. The people who stoked the fire died. Now, if I told Helen I'm going to go stoke the fire in our living room, she's not expecting me to die. She has other plans for me. Now, her plans might kill me, but that, that plan is not going to kill me. You got it? These men went and stoked the fire. It was so hot that they died. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were hurled into the fiery furnace. But what they said is, even if he slays me, yet will I trust him. Because they were connected to God who is above circumstance. Well, that's easy to say. Some of you are going, yeah, maybe above your circumstance. But you should hear my circumstances. My circumstances are tough. That's why Jesus came to say that he came to bring the oil of gladness to those who mourn, who were cut down by their circumstances. So Jesus is telling us here in a tremendous way, I'm not just going to comfort you, but I'm going to put a gladness in your heart that's beyond the situation. I can't do that. Miguel cannot do that. Helen can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. But we don't need anybody else to do it. We've got Jesus to do it. Then ashes. What's he going to give for ashes? Ashes, he's going to give an ornament of beauty. He reverses what the enemy does, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy produces destruction and ashes. And we have things in our life that sometimes fall apart. They just fall apart. We were going to go one way, it looked good, it just fell apart. We would call it ashes. We would say, this is not working. Furthermore, I thought this is where God was leading me. It is not working. This is bad. This is ashes. We're very clear when a house burns down, there was a house and now there's ashes. There was a house burning down next to Kathy couple years ago and you looked at the flames and you went this is going to be ashes you know that flame will take a house down to nothing to ashes when things in our life have reached the place that they're not working there there's a hump of ashes where we wanted there to be a living vibrant something and instead of that there's ashes jesus said this he said for ashes i'm going to make an ornament of beauty where there's ashes the thing that has failed and never worked and you tried it 20 times and you're so frustrated now you can't even begin to try it again, I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to make it an ornament of beauty. I can't do that. Margie can't do that. None of us can do that. Jesus can do that. And he said he was going to do it. He was going to take ashes and make them an ornament of beauty. Well, I hope you walk out of here going, I think I might have three piles of ashes in my life. And I would like Jesus to work on those. Great! He said, where there's ashes, I'm going to put an ornament of beauty. And this is his first description of what he said I'm going to do. 
It's a tremendous thing. All these things bring us from defeat to victory. Do you see what I'm saying? These are all victory things. And the last one was a spirit of heaviness or a fainting spirit. And for that, he's going to give a mantle of praise. I find myself a lot of times coming up saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't know if you've had a fainting spirit. I'll give you a fainting spirit. 50 people are going to eat dinner at your house tonight. Get ready. Oh, that's it right there. That spirit right there. That's a fainting spirit. Instead of taking care of two kids, 22 kids are coming to your house. That's it right there. That's that fainting spirit. Okay, Pastor Miguel is going to be gone six months. And uh, Chibu, he's asked you if you'll preach every sermon over those six months. Yes, that's it right there. That feeling. Okay, um, uh, you know, I, I was working on this. They told my debt when I finished this would be $3,000. It's going to be $30,000. Yeah, right there. That's the fainting spirit. It's that feeling, and we all have that in life. A loved one is sick, and we don't know how we're going to be able to care for them. Something financially went terrible. My, my brother tells me a story of a doctor who was really, really good at investing in the 90s, and he was really, really good at it, and, you know, he, he had tuned down what to put in, and the 90s had a good bull market in it, and you could make a lot of money. And he had figured out that if you really wanted to make money, you should invest in two places. And that was Enron and Lehman Brothers. And he took all his money and his 401k and put it in Enron and Lehman Brothers. Well, those of you that know about the market know there is no more Enron. There is no more Lehman Brothers. They went totally to the bottom. And every single thing that that person thought was my strength and my help and my hope and I'm optimizing my future went to the bottom. It went to the bottom. That causes you to have a fainting spirit, a fainting spirit. But it's also a spirit of heaviness. Now, there is a spiritual spirit of heaviness. There's a demon that just always demons bring heaviness. Demons are interested in showing their power over you, and they want to put an oppression. That's why it says that sin oppresses, the enemy oppresses. That's what stealing, killing, and destroying is. It's all the negative oppression of the enemy. And there's a spirit that can come. And that spirit needs to be resisted. It can simply be resisted, but it's a, just to know that there's a spirit that can come and try to do that. But there can be a spirit of heaviness that comes just from thinking, and the enemy will encourage us to think in downward spirals. Well, you did well in high school, but since you've tried to do things after high school, it's not been so good. You made it through college, but not as good as high school. And that first job, you were making decent money, and you thought getting to the second job is going to be a better thing, but the grass was not greener, and you now have bitten off something that you can't get out of. It's not going to be as good as your first job. You see, you kind of go from high school slowly going down, and the rest of your life is just a spiral. That's the enemy. That is heaviness. That is, um, so hope works for the government, I work for the government. Sometimes you finish one pile of things and you just go, yes! And somebody walks in with a pile twice as big and puts it in your inbox and you go, no! <laughs> and you just go, Lord, what is this? There can be a spirit of heaviness. You don't have the energy. Um, I don't want to go into that, but I don't have the energy I used to have. We, we don't have the energy to take something. Well, once you look at something and figure out you don't have the energy, it makes you feel depressed and discouraged. Just think how much depression there is in this world right now. That's the spirit of heaviness. 
And the enemy pumps it and pumps it and pumps it. And this is where Jesus is saying, let me tell you something. For that spirit of heaviness, I'm going to give you a mantle of praise, which is a garment of praise. So instead of thinking on the heaviness, you're in the same situation, but inside of your heart, there is praise. With the same circumstance, there is praise. After you walk with the Lord for a while, you're going to recognize He knows how to give strength. He'll give you whatever strength you need for whatever you need to do. A lot of times we don't know what we need to do, and it all looks overwhelming. He always provides the strength. The most dangerous thing you can do in life is not walk with the Lord. If you're out on your own, you are in trouble. You are in serious trouble. And the Lord will let you get smacked on your back so you'll look up. He will let that happen. Walking with the Lord, we have every reason to have a mantle of praise. Every reason because of whom we know who lives in us and we live in him. And this is why the verses, I'm not going to read these again, but the vine and the branch verses in John 15 are so important. And in the middle of it, Jesus says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, I really, really think in my top three scripture sections in the Bible is John 15, 1 through 7. Because this is Jesus in the last part before he's headed to Calvary. He's sitting down. John 14 through John 17 is when Jesus sits down and gives instructions to his disciples before he's leaving. And these are very important instructions and are by far the most detailed instructions that come from Jesus that explain the relationship of Jesus with us and also talk about how that relationship works. They far surpass all other sections of Scripture, John 14 through 17. But here he says the two things I want to list from these two verses are that we cannot bear fruit unless Jesus abides in us and we're abiding in him. He says, you can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. It's like a branch. You disconnect it from the vine. It doesn't bear fruit. But when the branch is connected to the vine, what is producing the fruit? Is the branch producing the fruit or is the vine producing the fruit? Well, it's a mixture of the vine and the branch. The vine has nutrients and really good things that flow through the branch that produces the fruit. And you'd say, well, in one sense, the branch is doing it. But in a bigger sense, the vine is doing it. That is the walk with Jesus. We're abiding in him, and he's abiding in us, and you cannot break out with a scalpel and say, ah, 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 those were Jesus, ah, 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 this was me. It doesn't work that way. It's a mixture. It's like egg and flour. You mix egg and flour, and then Ada comes back and says, I want that egg back. Well, you can't get the egg back. Well, isn't it in there? Yes, it is in there. Well, I want it back. Well, you can't get it back. Well, just separate it out and put it on the plate. You can't separate it out. It has joined together to make a new creation. And when we come in Christ, the Bible says anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He creates something new. And we cannot, with our brain, explain it fully. As a matter of fact, we can only explain it a little bit. But that's okay 
it's okay not to be able to explain it. If we could explain God, we would be so frustrated because God would be so small. But God moves, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, that anyone is in Christ has become one spirit with him. I don't understand that. But that's what it says. Somehow our spirit merges with his spirit to make a new creation. And so he says, your job is to abide in me. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now notice, he doesn't say, if you will abide in me and do these seven things. That's not what he said. He said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Because if you abide in him, you're going to do those things. Works to a Christian are to be a result of abiding in Christ, not a result of duty. When Satan lists out works, it's, Margie, you're a Christian, you ought to be this. When Jesus lists out works, he goes, because you abide in me, you love. You love the Father. You love your brother. You help people. You are doing things because you love me and because I'm in you. And therefore, who receives the glory? Jesus. Whereas, if we set up our own separate path and say, I'm a Christian, Christians are supposed to do this, the pastor told me nobody's looking at me and seeing anything decent, and I've got to come up with things decent, I'm going to do these eight decent things, and at the end I'll go tell the pastor, I did these eight decent things, and two people said thank you, and now that'll get the pastor off my back. If you're going to do that, that is flesh glorying. You can't do that, because in the end, we will take the credit. And then it's a duty. But you see, when the Scripture talked about the kingdom, it said that Jesus was the treasure in the middle of the field. And it says that the man bought the field not out of duty, but out of joy. I just can't lay that on as thick as I want to. The Christian life in Christ really is joy. I mean, Paul said some amazing things. He said, I don't count any of the sufferings that I've had to be compared to the glory that's been revealed. And here's a man who was beaten five times with 39 lashes. And he just dismissed it. And I said this before, if I was beaten once with 39 lashes, I'm afraid you'd all hear about it ten times. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not taking five lashes. Paul was beaten five times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He, went through, he said, I don't even count that to be compared. I, it's not even comparable to, to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. I count all of this other stuff as trash, rubbish. The really good word is dung. We don't use that word commonly today, but the other word for dung. I count it all as dung compared to knowing Jesus my Lord. It's not, it's not even comparable. You see, that's where, he, that's where the Lord is trying to take us. That's what's in him. That's what makes heaven, heaven. That's why it says in John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. Because when we know him, it's eternal life. Most of us could not describe heaven adequately. Whatever we think we're going to do in heaven, we would be thoroughly bored in 10,000 years. Thoroughly bored. As a matter of fact, it freaks me out that there's no night. Because in my mind, I have to sleep. There's no sleeping. There's no sun. The Bible says the Father and the Son, S-O-N, light heaven. Well, this, you know, this should take your mind and just send it out. You can't handle that. 
How can there be everlasting life, unending life? I can't, conf- I can't hold that. Same way, see, he who creates unending life is greater than unending life. And so he's saying, don't constrict me down, do what I say. And so in John 14, 21, he says, if you will keep my commandments, I will reveal myself to you. And so instead of questioning Jesus, Jesus is saying, try this, do what I said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. I'll reveal myself to you. And then that next verse, he says, he who abides in me bears much fruit. So that when we're in the middle of defeat, the Bible says when we abide in him, we bear much fruit. We bear a fruit of victory and love and joy and peace. Why? Because we abide in him and he abides in us. Well, how exactly does that work? No one can explain how exactly does that work. No one can explain it. In Mark, he describes the kingdom of God and he says, a man sows seed and goes to bed and wakes night and day, and the plant grows, and the scripture is specific. He knows not how. The the scripture just says flat out, he knows not how. We know not how Jesus in us produces fruit. We don't know how he does it. We know we have got to be in him, and he's got to be in us, but we don't know how it works. He just does it. I had somebody here testify to me. It was a great thing, and they said, I'd been away from the Lord for a while, and I knew God was calling me, and I just decided to try to spend an hour a day reading the Word, trying to seek God, just trying to seek Him. I didn't know anything else to do. I didn't come to church, but I did that, and I noticed in three months my whole life had changed. And all these things that were terrible problems three months ago, something had happened. God is the something that happens. And so when we talk about faith, I, I have a wonderful verse that I like. In Hebrews eleven six. 6, I'm almost done, Helen. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, he says, he says um, For without faith it is impossible to please God. They that come unto God must believe two things. The first is that God exists. And the second is that he rewards those who seek him. The first is that God exists, and the second is he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that God rewards you when you seek him? It doesn't say he rewards those who are qualified. It doesn't say he rewards anything else. He rewards those who seek him. You must believe that if you try to please God, God rewards it. He spoke through a donkey. He has no trouble imparting knowledge, skills, and abilities. But what he can't do is change. He can't force your heart. Our heart has got to go for him, and we must believe that if we're trying to follow him, he rewards that against any voice, and there will be many voices. Oh, well, you sought after God, but your mom died, didn't she? I mean, you were praying for her, but she did die, so prayer doesn't work. No, that's not the way it goes. You see, the Bible says that you must believe that if you're seeking after him, he rewards that. And he does reward that. That is faith. Faith is believing if I'm trying to follow him, he rewards it. And his reward can be totally different than the way we were thinking, and his path can be different. But he rewards it. So the scripture says you've got to know 
that I'm abiding in you, and you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. It's not an option. If Jesus is there, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in me that is love, joy, peace, and all those things. That's the fruit of Jesus in me. So when he, when he calls us, he's saying, I've got all these things that counter defeat and bring defeat into victory. And defeat in your life can be in all those areas. Being, you can be brokenhearted, a captive, be mourning, be ashes where everything has failed, and have a spirit of heaviness where it's just hard to go on. And he said, I can change every single one of those. Not only I can, but I do change it if you'll abide in me. And I'm going to finish just with uh, reading over six verses that are great memory verses that talk specifically that the Lord strengthens us. Because I want to focus on this thing of being strengthened because the enemy so focuses on weakness. And the enemy comes in and says, you're praying, you're praying, you're praying. Nothing is happening. Okay? You don't get to give God marks on how he's doing things. He's, and the enemy will come in and say, nothing is happening. But there, there are six verses that are good verses. And, and many of you know a, a whole chunk of these. But the first is Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this is that same thing. We're abiding in Christ. He is the vine that strengthens the branch and pushes all this through. I can do all things because he is strengthening me. The next verse is 2 Thessalonians 3.3, and this is not often quoted, but it says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Really good verse. There's sometimes in the day you go, I can't get the evil one off my back. The Bible says the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. It's a great verse just to throw at the enemy and go, you can do what you want. I have strength from my God, and he protects me from you. You can talk and gabble and tell me all these negative things. We're not going there. The next one is 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, I'm just, as a personal confession, I cannot honestly say that verse. I am not well content with weakness, insults, distresses, and persecutions. My natural feeling is to go away from those things. But Paul said, I am well content that all these things are hitting me in life. Now, this is a hard thing to grab. This is not a 101 concept. But Paul says, when these things come for Christ's sake, not because of other things, but for Christ's sake, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay if I feel weak, if I haven't eaten. I'm okay if it's raining on me and I haven't got shelter. I'm okay if I'm persecuted and distressed. I'm okay with that. And then what was the, how did he finish that? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, sometimes this verse is misquoted. And people will say, when I am weak, he is strong. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says, when I am weak, I am strong. Now, this is a special thing because Paul was closely connected to the Lord. 
And we're going to read another verse in Galatians that's very confusing. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is a very tough verse for me. It starts off by saying, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. Okay, well, if you're going to say you're no longer doing it, but Christ is alive, okay, I mean, if you're going to say that, I can buy that. The next phrase, he says, but the life I now live. Well, you can't come back into it. You just told me Jesus was now living. You've got to have it one way or the other. But it's not one way or the other. We are a new creation where we are mixed in with Jesus in a glorious way, and he is living through me, but I'm still alive, and I'm still living. And we're going to get to this next week, but this is the same thing as in Psalm 127, where it says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Well, if the Lord's building the house, why am I building it? Because God chose to work through us. It was his choice that I'm going to move through you, and I'm going to be doing it, and you're going to be doing it. I'm the vine, you're the branch. And you're not over there two miles away. You are hooked into me in a way only I understand. And I'm going to be living and you're going to be living. And I'm building the house and you're building the house. And we're going to do that in a special way so that I'm moving through you and you're involved. So if I took Christian out to the parking lot over here and, and he said, man, I got this really nice car and I'm going to drive you all all around. He got in the car and we drove around and we finished up at the end, Mary, and you said, um, well, that was very nice of Christian to take us on that drive in that car, for Christian to drive us around. And somebody else stopped and said, well, it wasn't exactly Christian. All Christian did was turn a key, push a pedal, and steer a little bit. It was the car that took us. Christian, he didn't put out the energy. I mean, if you know anything about energy, he just sat, just moved these little things, and the car is what took us. Well, you might say in the end, well, yeah, it was the car, but it was kind of Christian too. You see, Christian was kind of guiding and moving things, but the car gave the power. And in the end, you're going to have to say it was the car and Christian combined. And you all know this. This is one of the scary things about driving. And I know you do this. Don't tell me I'm the only one. But you look up and you go, wait a second. What happened to the last mile? I don't remember the last mile. You went through a red light, you turned left, you turned right another one, and then you woke up and you go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you have this feeling that you were on autopilot. Do you know that feeling? I hope you do. It happens to me every once in a while. But you're driving so together with your car, you're kind of one. Well, that's Jesus. You're so together with Jesus that the distinction of what's Jesus and what's you. Now, I want to say this. I could probably get shot in theology school for saying this. But you're not exactly Jesus and you're not exactly you. You're a new creation where the Father has made a new son in his family or a new daughter in his family after the image of the first son, but not identical to the first son. You see, God made us that we be transformed to the image of Christ, but we're going to be us. So in heaven, God's going to say, I wanted there to be Kathy, and I made Kathy because I wanted there to be Kathy. I didn't want Kathy to be absorbed and lost. I want there always to be Kathy. It was my will there always be Kathy. 
I looked on earth and I said, I want to have a body. In Zechariah 12, 1, it says he puts his spirit within us. I want to have a body that has got Kathy in it. And I'm going to take Kathy's spirit and forever Kathy's going to be with me. And that's what I want. I already have my son Jesus, but I want Kathy. Now, it's hard to think that God loves us that much. But that end of Galatians 2.20 says, and this is such a good part about it, he says, Jesus, who loved me and gave his life for me. It doesn't say Jesus, who loved the lost and gave his life for the lost. Or Jesus, who loved Israel and gave his life for Israel. Or Jesus, who loved the Gentiles and gave his life for the Gentiles. He says, who loved me and gave his life for me. Well, see, that's just, the, you can't have good news like that in any other place that God did that. So what, what he's saying is God provides this strength, but you can't dissect it out and say, well, I went to the store and bought three pounds of strength. I was feeling bad today, so I bought three pounds of strength. Now, you might do that. You might go get some mac and cheese and potato chips and say, you know, but the real strength I'm talking about, okay, you can't just buy three pounds of stuff. It's in Jesus. So he says then, when he's talking about strength, he says that when I am weak, I am strong. Well, he's being honest there, but the way I read that is when I am weak, which is my abilities, my abilities on my flesh to do things, when that's weak, then I am totally reliant on him who is strong, and I'm strong because he strengthens me. And Paul said, when I came and talked to you, I didn't even talk in nice language, I didn't do anything. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified among you. To know nothing else so that your faith may not rely in men, but your faith would rely in God. Do you see? So he's saying when I'm weak, when the, when the, the Jim Perkle abilities is weak and all that's tough, then I am really strong because of Him who lives within me and in whom I abide. And that's just tremendous. And that's just 2 Corinthians 12, 10. So you can imagine. So then, he, then Isaiah 40, 31. Don't want to miss Isaiah. He says, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength or renew their strength. But a good translation of it is gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Those who do what? Wait upon the Lord. Those who abide in the Christ will gain new strength. God brings new strength. And oftentimes you don't see new strength coming, but he brings it. And then 1 Peter 4.11 is not often quoted, but very important, I think. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So he says that those who serve are to do so as one who is serving, how? By the strength which God supplies. Uh, and I know all of you in here have had this experience. Sometimes you said, well, I've got to do this. I don't have the strength to do it, but I know the Lord's calling me to do it. Somehow, when you get in the middle of it, you finish it. I had it happen to me this week. I had a particularly thick week at work, and I had to do something at night, and I just said, I don't, you know, have you ever, um, I, I don't know if y'all are like me, but I can look at my body, and I can feel it, and I can go, it's not there. 
You're asking me to do this. It's not there. What's there right now is exhaustion. And you're saying push through. Well, it's not there. But, I just, but if you'll take that one step with the Lord, the Bible says that you are serving by the strength which God supplies, not your own strength. And God's strength never runs out. So if we'll step forward into what he's saying, even if we, our assessment is my tank is on zero, he'll still provide that. He is faithful to do that. And the last verse is very important, and I want to emphasize it a lot, is it says, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit, the essence of the Holy Spirit is power. He has power. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive power. It is supernatural power. It is godly power. It is godly power that's in the Holy Spirit. And you go, well, this doesn't make sense. My body doesn't make sense because it's God doing something above our understanding. And God most often operates above our understanding. All those stories in the Old Testament, every single time you read a story in the Old Testament, the children of Israel in trouble, God comes up with a solution that nobody suggests. When Moses was at the edge of the Red Sea, what did God do? He split the Red Sea. You can't split the Red Sea. God split the Red Sea. When Jehoshaphat was going out to battle an enemy ten times as big as his, what did God say? Put the worshipers out front with no weapons and have them worship me. And Jehoshaphat did it, totally against any military logic, and God defeated the enemy by having them turn one to another. God sends down hail the size of baseballs. He takes the enemy and blinds all their eyes. He sends down fire from heaven. He'll take one angel in one night and kill 186,000 men. God is always doing things in a way we don't predict or understand, and he's given us story after story after story in the Old Testament for that. And in Romans 15, 4, it says that these stories were written that we might cherish hope. All these stories were written in the Old Testament that we might cherish hope. And what do we see in those stories? When people don't know what to do and they're fainting and they don't have strength and they're desperate, God is never fainting, never out of strength, and never desperate, but always in control. We need to be like Elisha who said, open the eyes of my servant. He didn't say, send angels. He said, open the eyes of my servant, and his servant saw the angels that Elisha already knew were there. And that's what we need to be. We need to know that God is powerful, and he's not in any way going to let us down. Victory is in Jesus. Jesus is victory over that, whatever that is. He really is victory over that. Even children, even stubborn children, even bureaucracy. I know, hope this will be hard to believe, but Jesus is victory over bureaucracy. He is victory over the internet. He is victory in every single thing that can tear us down. And he wants us to know him, not just as victory, but to know him. Victory comes in him because all the blessings of God are in Christ Jesus. And when we are in him and he is in us, the blessing of victory is in us because we're in him. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we ask that you would 
just open up to us in the most real way how wonderful you are beyond our understanding and our imagination. For you are beyond what we can comprehend. It is true the eye has not seen nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into our mind the things that you've prepared for us. And you are the preparer. And if we can't conceive of the things you've done, we don't conceive of the fullness of you by any means. Please let us fend off the attacks of the enemy with the appeals of worldly wisdom and the deception that that wisdom is true wisdom. When in your word you said Jesus was made unto us wisdom. I ask now that you bless each one that's here. In Jesus' precious name, amen.